Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest is John Lawson, the story of a life redeemed. John, welcome to Facing the Canon. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm, I'm delighted, really delighted. I'm really delighted. Um, I've read your book. Oh, wow, what a story. If a wicked man, mm-hmm. where did you get that title from? Actually, it was from the very first thing that I read in the Bible when I was in prison. So this Nigerian prisoner was just trying to get me to go along to Bible studies all the time. And eventually I went, which I'm sure we'll get into. He gave me a Bible, which I was reluctant to receive from him. But that night I kind of just flicked it open. It opened in Ezekiel 18, 27 to 32. And I read, if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness that he has committed, and if he does what is just and right, he can save his life, he won't have to die because he considers all of the offences, and I had a lot, because he considers all of the offences he's committed and he turns away from them, he will surely live. And then there's a complaint from the house of Israel. Children, we love to complain to our parents. Oh, the ways of the Lord are not just. And God says, no, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, I will judge each one of you according to your ways, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent. Rid yourself of all the offences you have committed, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord, so repent and live. Well, in that moment, I just knew I needed a new heart and a new spirit. Wasn't sure how you got it, but that will come out later. That is incredible, John. Okay, let's tell the story before, and then let's tell the story since that moment. You grew up in Scotland, but then you relocated to South Africa. Yeah, yeah, when I was three years old, we, we, were, um, we lived in a really poverty area of Glasgow called Mary Hill. My dad was in the Merchant Navy and he docked in Durban one day and he thought that would be a great place. So when I was three, we emigrated to South Africa, completely different lifestyle. Uh, we got an apartment all to ourselves that we didn't have to share with all the family. Um, I would play out barefoot, climb trees, there'd be monkeys there, it was amazing. My dad joined the police force. Uh, My little brother was born when I was six, so we were like the perfect family unit. But when I was 10, things changed quite dramatically. My mum received a phone call to say that my grandfather had terminal cancer and he had about six weeks to live. So she wanted to see her father again, she should come home quickly. Arrangements were hastily made, my little brother and her went. And I stayed in South Africa with my dad to finish school. But my dad was having an affair with another woman that nobody knew about. He picked me up from school one day and he locked me in the apartment told me to be brave, you're 10 years old, you're a big boy, and if he's not back that night, I should take myself to bed. He went off and picked up his mistress, went off for a holiday somewhere, and I was left in there with no food. And on the fourth day, uh, some family friends broke open the door and they found me in a state of semi-consciousness on the floor. I hadn't eaten for four days and hadn't drunk, and they helped me to get on an aeroplane and and come back to the UK, to England this time. I mean, that's... Just can't imagine a parent locking up their child in a house for four days. Mm. I mean, you must have been traumatised. Actually, I have no memory of it whatsoever. None at all. All I can remember is the door being broken open. I see these fragments of door frame. I never knew about it until I went back in 86 to kind of find my dad. And those same family friends who we're in touch with today, they said to me, it's a terrible thing what your dad did. And I said, well, you know, parents get divorced. And they went, no. And they explained to me what had happened. Um, So even though I've tried to remember, 
I think God just does a miracle in people's lives and blocks things out blocks that may be too painful. And protected so you. It, it doesn't hurt me to share that because I don't remember it. But then you came back to England. Yeah. And, I mean... Oh, my goodness, you... life was so different. <laughs> in South Africa, you're raised quite strictly. Even today, and I go back regular, a teenager would never come up to you, John, and go, Oi, mate, you know, can you tell me the directions to so-and-so? They would come up and say, excuse me, uncle? Or, hi, auntie? Yeah, they respect their elders. Their elders, yeah. And never dare speak back to a teacher in those days. But Birkenhead, my goodness, uh, the language, the threats of violence, people want to have a fight with you, was a bit of a shock. Um, then my granddad died, and my gran got really sick almost immediately. You know the doctor said that she died of a broken heart, my gran? Uh, it's not a medical condition, but they said she just gave up the will to live. Um, and then we had nowhere to live, so we moved back to Scotland to what was um, the worst housing estate in the whole of Europe at the time, called Drumchapel. Uh, my mum would open up our flat as a refuge to um, women that had been beaten by their husbands, and the police would do nothing in those days. They called it a domestic. That angered me, and I, I began to hate the police. And I remember my father was a policeman, and my hatred just grew, and then eventually we moved back to Birkenhead. But I was just a different kid by then. Yeah. Uh, violence had become a friend to me, because that's how you earned respect. Um, thankfully, and things got worse. They got worse. I left school at 18 with no qualifications. Uh, and then I went down to Soho. My uncles were connected with the Maltese Mafia that they met in prison. And they were now uh, partners with them. They were earning a lot of money, running peep shows and hostess bars, strip joints, uh, rip-off places for tourists, thinking they're going to see some provocative show, but there was nothing of the sorts. They were paying extortionate prices for drinks. Uh, and then, you know, we demand money from them. And... So introduced into another seedy world. Yeah, yeah. Soho, I mean, what a difference from there. And uh, I was just a young man earning loads of money, ten times more than my mates were earning back home in factories. And um, it was exciting. And, you know, you had all this, these naked women around you. And it, it, it was like a young man's dream. And having a flat in Soho, it was exciting. Um, but... That's all I focused on, the excitement and the, and the money. But that would then lead me to my first spell in prison. So what did you do to get sent to prison? Well, there was an American tourist that wasn't happy about his extortionate bill, and he pushed the waitress over, and I kung fu kicked him in the chest and forced him to pay, and he ran into the arms of the police, and I got arrested for robbery. I was sent down for nine months, just a small nine months, first offence, and my uncle said to me, you need to go back up north. You've brought attention to the family name. So I went back up north and I met a girl from Wigan and we got married. She was a single mum. We got married. We had a son together. But then there was this repetition of what happened in my lifestyle, in my life as a child. She cheated and I found out and I left. I wasn't going to have any of that. And I applied for custody of my son. And by the age of 23, I was um, a, one of the only single dads at the time um, living at my mum's and... I just wanted money again, I wanted more money, so um, I would end up getting into much more serious crime after that. And then back into prison? Uh, back to prison. I worked with my uncles again by trying to open a, an adult porno shop, DVD shop in, in Birkenhead. Got closed down by the council and went to prison again for a small time. Um, but in between that, I'd been working as a bouncer across the northwest of England. I worked for a company that would send bouncers to nightclubs where the local bouncers had lost control, local gangsters intimidating local bouncers. And how you sort that problem out is you bring in a team from somewhere else 
who don't give a hoot when that gangster stands in front of you and says, do you know who I am? Don't care who you are. That would often end violently and we would clean up those nightclubs and then install a new team and move on to the next place. So my life was just violence after violence, which I'm ashamed to tell you, um, I really enjoyed it. I, I think I had a sick problem in my head because the violence was, was just such a friend to me. And we would boast about bloody knuckles or blood on your shirt. We wore them as medals of honour. Yeah, like you know? pride. You take yeah, pride in it. Yeah, when I think back on it, I feel so ashamed of the way that I lived. Um, and eventually then, yeah, I went back to prison and it was there we met guys that said we could use a team like you because I worked with a team of ex-Special Forces soldiers. Um, and that would then take me into much more serious kidnapping and extortion and very, very high levels of crime. So... You're a Christian today, you're an evangelist. How did you encounter Jesus and get transformed? What happened? Well, it was, it was through getting arrested again. Thankfully, I was caught by the police. By now, I was, I was doing international kidnap and extortion, holding men hostage and robbing drug dealers as, as a way to produce income. Um, a very, very violent lifestyle. I hid it from my family. So I lived this double life. Um, on one side, I believed I was a good husband and father because I provided. We had a big house and nice cars and holidays and I read bedtime stories to my kids. But then I would put on a balaclava and go and hold men hostage. Um, yeah, I was, I was sick in, in my head, I think, John. And, well, finally, eventually, the police caught me again and I got four years in prison for attempted extortion. And a month later, they took me from prison to court to give evidence against the rest of the team they rounded up. And, well, I was a bit rude to the judge. I told him where he could put his evidence and it's not somewhere I care to repeat. Of course. Uh, and, well, the judge thanked me and gave me an extra 15 months on top for contempt of court. Uh, the Proceeds of Crime Act came in and seized the properties and the bank accounts and everything. And it didn't take long for my wife to say, I've had enough of this. I was all over the newspapers, and John Lawson, enforcer for gangsters, and all I could think about in prison was getting out and going back and robbing all these people, but not paying commission this time, keeping it all. Um, and there I was in this high-security prison in Scotland, uh, near Stirling, and um, I met this Nigerian prisoner, as I said earlier. Yes. He tried for four months to get me to go to a Bible study, but he shared with me one day that the pastor from Dunblane brings in nice cake and coffee and biscuits. And I was like, you're such an idiot. You could have told me that before. So I went along with a little plan. I knew that Christians prayed, and when they prayed, they closed their eyes. Perfect opportunity to fill my pockets. But I was so disappointed when we got in there, the pastor moved us away and we went and sat on the other side of the room. Twelve other prisoners, murderers and drug dealers and bank robbers, a violent idiot like me, and... Well, then he sat down on my left and he pulled out a guitar and a song sheet, and I thought, oh, here we go. I can just see it, hallelujahs and kumbayas. Yes. What's he gonna do, make a campfire and toast marshmallows now? <laughs> yes. That was my impression of Christians, right? Yes. Uh, and then these other guys, these other prisoners, they relaxed and they began to sit back in their chair, raising up their hands, and they sang, like, with passion. Not like little church mice. No, they, they really enjoyed it. They went for it, John, honestly. Yes. And it was something in that moment, as I was reading the song, it was open the eyes of my heart, Lord. It was like a rock gospel version of it. And in that moment, I knew I was going to cry. It started in my belly and rose to my chest, and then I hid my face behind the song sheet because I didn't want anyone to see me crying. I cried like a baby. Didn't steal anything. The next morning, 
there he is outside my cell with the Bible. He gave it to me, and as I explained earlier, I read from Ezekiel. Ezekiel. If a wicked man turns away and... So you literally just opened it? Opened it, and that's the first bit I ever read from, from the Holy Bible. And I was... I didn't want Jesus at that point. I didn't know Jesus. I wasn't searching for Jesus. I hadn't read anything about Jesus there. I read that God can give you a new heart and a new spirit. But I didn't know how you get it. So I went back to the Bible study the following week, and I said to this pastor, how is this possible that your God can give me a new... Like, with my record, how is this possible? And you know, John, he explained the gospel message to me in a relevant way under the, my circumstances. He shared it so simply, and I think Christians, we overcomplicate the message sometimes, or we undercomplicate it, you know? But he said to me, John, you committed crimes, you went to court, you stood before a judge, you were found guilty, and you were sent to prison. Yes. Well, one day when you die, you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day. On that day, do you think you'd be guilty or innocent, heaven or hell? Really simple message. I said, well, I don't know. You know, isn't, isn't God been reading about God as love and merciful? And can't he just let me into hell? I've done loads of good things. Like when I was on bail, I saved nine people from a burning building. I was in the papers as a hero. I won awards from the police and the fire brigade. I helped little ladies across the road, and I never deal with innocent people, only criminals. And so maybe God can see the good things. He said, did you explain that to the judge in court? I said, yeah. And what did the judge say? He said, Mr. Lawson, you're not here on trial for the good things you've done. And that hit home. And he said, you can't bribe God, John, with your good works. Yes. He said, it's amazing. I said, so what, how, how does this happen then? How do I get to heaven? He says, well, that's why Jesus Christ came to the world. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death on the cross. He took the punishment that you and I deserve for breaking his laws. And you know, when he went to that cross, it's almost like if you were in court and the judge was going to send you to prison or give you a humongous fine that you couldn't pay. And a rich guy stands up and he says, I'll pay John's fine. The judge could set you free even though someone else paid your fine. Justice was served. In the same way, when Jesus went to the cross and he died on that cross for you, John, it's like he wrote a check with his blood for your life. And you know what's quite amazing? After three days, the check cleared because Jesus rose from the dead. Absolutely. And are you aware of the legal circumstances that take place in heaven because of that? I was like, what? It's my language here. Legal, prison, heaven, hell. He said, because Jesus paid your fine, God can dismiss your case. He can set you free from his courtroom and he can give you eternal life. And the only thing you have to do is respond to that in this way. Repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ. Surrender your life to him. What a simple message. And you got it. I you got understood it. the analogy. Everything. Everything. And it was a week later, I was in my cell, and I cried out to God for the first time ever. I just prayed a simple prayer in tears. I, I, was, I felt just so ashamed of all the things I'd done. And I just said, God, I don't even know how to pray to you. I'm to your son Jesus, but if you can remove the shame from me, I'm so sorry for all the things that I've done. Would you please give me that new heart and new spirit in there? I want to surrender my life to Christ and I'll follow you for the rest of my life. And he changed me in that prison, you know? It was other prisoners began to notice. My filthy language stopped. John, I didn't wake up one morning and go, oh, I'm a Christian now, I ought not to swear anymore. Uh, it just fell away. Yes. And things are still falling away all these years later. Well, he changed me. You were born again. I was born again in that prison. When I was released two years later, 
My mate picked me up and he said, John, we're going to... And now I was homeless. He said, John, we're going to go party tonight. We're going to find you a beautiful woman and a big meal. You're going to get drunk. And I said, Tam, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah. He said, but you, you, you got set free today. And I said, no. I was set free two years ago behind them prison walls, my friend. John, for any of our listeners, viewers who don't yet know Jesus, what would you say to them? Uh, well, listen, you know, I was just like you. And, and I hope, I would imagine the majority of you never did the kind of things I did. My life changed because of Jesus Christ, and I'm alive today because of him. I have a wife and I have a home and I have a family, and my life has never been more exciting. Being a Christian isn't boring. Um, it's not always wonderful and a bed of roses. Let me tell you that. Jesus promises in his word there'll be trials and tribulations and persecution will come your way, but through that, he's the one that gets you through all the storms, and I owe everything. I would urge you, if you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? Come on. Today is the day of salvation. And John, for anyone that would like to say yes to what you've just said, would you lead them in a prayer that they can pray? Absolutely. Uh, look, if you feel that conviction from the Holy Spirit, not through anything John or this John has said, it will be the Holy, Holy Spirit that will convict your heart today. And if you feel that conviction, you can pray a simple prayer, but your words mean nothing unless your heart is in it. I just want to remind you of that. There's no magical formula or quick prayer to do it. But I said a prayer that changed my life, and why? Because I meant it. So I would urge you to mean it, or don't pray, leave it for another day. But if you're genuine, let me lead you through a prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to pray for, for these people at home who are watching this, in whatever country they're watching in, that right now they feel your Holy Spirit convicting them and drawing them to you. I'm going to say a prayer. It's not very eloquent. It's just what I prayed in, in that prison cell. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I... I'm lost for words, I don't know what to say to you, except I'm so sorry for all the things I've done, the way I've lived my life, and I'm so ashamed. Would you please help me to know you? I want to receive your son, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Saviour today, and I repent of everything that I've ever done. Lord, I'm gonna need help. I, I don't know how to truly surrender. I'm gonna need your help with this, and, but I promise to read your word and, and follow you, and. I, I just want my life to change. I want my life to fall into your hands. And I say this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Saviour. Amen. 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 If you did pray that prayer, we pray that you will know the truth of the prayer that you've prayed and that you will know Christ's forgiveness and his healing and his presence and his peace. And we pray for your protection. And can we encourage you to read the Bible, uh, start in the New Testament with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and find a local church where you can grow in your faith. John, you, you've been diagnosed with the little C, which I prefer to call cancer. Mm -hmm. When were you diagnosed? Well, John, I, I was diagnosed on Easter Sunday, uh, 2021, with a stage four tumour in my bowel. Um, six weeks later, I had a, an operation, they cut me open, they removed all the right-hand side, very successfully. But 10 days later, the stitches burst open, I went back in with something called peritonitis, which was very life-threatening. Major operations again, and this time a stoma bag put on me. 
I had four months of chemotherapy, and at the end of October 2021, I was given the all clear, which was great news for my wife and I and the family, of course. On the first six monthly scan, however, they called me back in and said, we have some really bad news to tell you. Um, you've got peritoneal disease, a tumour in your peritoneum. Um, you, it's a slim, slim chance you can get an operation because it's very delicate. But right now we're saying you've got six to nine months to live at a maximum and there's nothing more we can do. Fortunately, after a lot of prayer, two weeks later, I was called into Basingstoke Hospital and had another major operation. Uh, they cut me open again. I had a 10-hour op, 27 hours under the anaesthetic, hot chemo, uh, stoma reversal, and um, I healed in, in uh, a record time. I was the, the, the patient that was out of there the quickest. I was told, we'll see you in 10 years. Uh, and then I had a three-month scan, which took us to last October, and they sat down with my wife and I and said, look, we're really sorry. It's come back much more aggressively. You now have cancer in your liver and another tumour in, uh, in your abdomen and the peritoneum. And there's nothing we can do but put you on palliative care until you die. They gave me a three-year life expectancy in October um, if the chemo was successful. But just recently, just about six weeks ago, um, they said to me, because of the way the cancer's progressing, um, we've had to to bring that down, that initial three years to 18 months. Bear in mind, you're six months into that. Well, that was about two months ago. So they're now saying I've got about 10 months left to live. You know, the Lord just gave me so many opportunities in hospital to share the gospel with patients, with visitors, with doctors, with nurses, in fact, cleaners. Everyone I could get <laughs> hold of heard the gospel. I even had, uh, in one way, I've got it on video, all the uh, male patients in, in with me, all saying the Lord's Prayer every morning. It was incredible. And uh, I just loved all the opportunities that God gives you. And, you know, I would say to, to Christians out there that the greatest gift we can give back to God is to share his word with those that don't know him. And open your mouths and let the gospel come out. You're not all going to be evangelists because only God gives that gift. But, but you can we're all witnesses. Yeah. Yes. And if I can do that on my sickbed and at times on my deathbed, what excuse do you have not to share? Come on, you know? So they, they always remark at how uh, I don't seem to be depressed or curled up in a ball or that I'm taking it quite well. And I just remind them, you know, it's God that determines the day I'll go home. And so with that knowledge and with knowing that it's God that determines that day, I'm not worried about dates and and as I say to other people you know what, what date have you put in your diary to die absolutely you know have you got a date have you put it in that I'm gonna die on this day I might live I might outlive all of you you know and hopefully I'll see some of you in heaven now God is the one that gives us life and God is the one who chooses the day that we depart from this world it, it's, it's God who does that so the Lord may intervene and he may choose to preserve your life longer but um, if he doesn't, and you do have, according to the doctors, 10 months to live, mm -hmm. do you have a bucket list? Oh, well, yes, actually we're gonna fulfill one of them. Uh, in about five weeks after this interview date, uh, we're heading off to Israel. We've always wanted to go to Israel. I'm sure it's every Christian's dream to go there. Initially, I was planning to go in October, um, but the doctor said, maybe you should bring that forward. So we're, we're bringing it forward sooner. And uh, we didn't know how we were going to find the resources to get there, but some friends of ours at a church in the Midlands 
Um, they had some problem with one of the airline companies and they made it up to them by giving them 50,000 air miles and their original ones back. Well, they called us up and said, we were thinking about how we could help you and we want to give you these air miles. So that was the flights covered. What else is on your bucket list? Bucket list was to try and get all the family together, uh, all my sons and, and um, brother and mum, get us all together in one place to just build memories, you know? So we're off to Somerset, we managed to get some finances to the together again with the help of others and we've booked this like big place as an indoor pool and then my final thing on the bucket list which we haven't achieved yet is my wife has always wanted to go somewhere where there's white sands and warm sea so we're trying to find a way where we, we, I can Make maybe that give possible. that to her just her and I yeah. to have a second honeymoon um, Carolyn's a lovely lady she just loves the Lord so much I'm so blessed to have her by my side and um, I'd really want to give her that if, if it's possible, and I'm sure the Lord will make it happen. As you look to the remaining year ahead, as well as those wonderful things on your bucket list, yeah. what else do you want to do for God? Oh, well, I want to continue serving him to my dying breath. I, want, I, I pray, my, my prayers are this. Uh, one, someone said to me, you can always pray to ask God to extend your life if it's possible. So if it's possible, Lord, extend my life, that I might serve you. And for no other reason, apart from, it's just horrible to see my wife grieving and crying and getting upset. Um, my prayers for her not to have to go through it because she's a, just such a lovely lady. But my prayer that I pray to God is the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it's possible, if it's possible, remove this cup from me, yet, not my will be done, but yours. That's my prayer. And the John, year ahead. And John, that is the prayer we, we all need to pray and echo. Yeah, and nothing a, more than that. Nothing no more shopping than that. list, no nothing. Yeah, if it's possible, extend my life, but if it's possible, remove it from me. But if not, your will be done, not my will. Not my will, your will, Lord. I want to keep serving him. The Lord's given me opportunities. I have chemotherapy every two weeks. I have a week of recovery, and in that week of recovery, I'm. Look, look at me now. I'm on chemo right now, actually. You are. Well, you a, had it yesterday and you've got it now. I had intravenous yesterday and I have this pump on for two days. It goes up. You might see a little tube there that goes into a port in my chest that goes into my jugular that will feed me more chemo over the next few days. And, um, but I'm feeling okay now. Next few days ahead will be a bit rough, but next week I'll be great. And so I'm still... I'm not doing any international speaking engagements. Uh, because of travel and travel insurance and with the cancer. But I'm able to go all over the UK, Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm, I'm open. I operate by invitation. So if anyone would like me to come along and work alongside them in their evangelistic efforts. And my other great passion is to then train and equip and encourage Christians. I've got some very robust evangelism training to just really help them understand what evangelism actually is. But statistically, 98% of Christians in the West don't share the gospel on a regular basis, and that troubles me. So I'm, I'm really trying to tackle that problem, come alongside congregations, encourage them to share the good news. John, you are a, a true inspiration. You've been ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. Amen. And, um, well, we pray that the Lord will preserve you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Thank you so much, John, for joining us on Facing the Canon. You're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. God bless. What an inspirational story. If you want to read the story in full, it's here. Uh, a great read. 
I hope that has inspired you. Hope it's encouraged you. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. One doctor developed the world's first vaccine. One civil rights activist helped to end racial segregation in the USA. One botanist developed new farming practices supporting impoverished farmers. One former slave escorted 300 others to freedom. One watchmaker saved the lives of 800 Jews and refugees during World War II. One politician persisted to see slavery legally abolished in the UK. Faith, love, generosity, sacrifice, perseverance. Heroes of the Faith, the new coffee table book by J. John. Available now at canonjjohn.com. <laughs>